Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your host, Chris Cooling. Remember, you can support Forgotten TV on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month and become a producer of Forgotten TV. Other ways to support are right here in the show notes or easily seen at Forgotten.tv. This episode of Forgotten TV was brought to you by executive producers Will Welton and Doc Pinko. The DVD set used for review was provided by Lee Goldberg. Thanks to all for your support of Forgotten TV. For those who came in late. The two Kolchak TV movies were covered in episodes 15 and 25 of Forgotten TV. The Kolchak character originated in a then-unpublished novel by Jeff Rice called the Kolchak Papers. In it, a Las Vegas newspaper reporter named Carl Kolchak tracks down and defeats a serial killer who turns out to be a vampire named Janos Skorzeny, which is a pretty accurate depiction of what happened in the first film. Yes, in 1972, ABC brought viewers The Night Stalker, earning the highest ratings of any TV movie up to that time. Wanting to repeat this success, ABC again turned to Dark Shadows producer Dan Curtis, who would this time also direct, and bring to the screen The Night Strangler in 1973, with Richard Matheson again writing. A third TV movie was slated to be produced titled The Night Killers, with a script by Matheson and Logan's Run writer William F. Nolan to be set in Honolulu with the story involving a UFO and people being replaced by androids. This TV movie was set aside when ABC chose to order a TV series instead. Dan Curtis didn't feel the Kolchak stories could be told effectively as a weekly series, and thus declined to participate. If you remember my coverage of The Night Strangler, you also know relations between he and Darren McGavin were strained, to say the least at the end of that movie. ABC started promoting this new series in the summer of 1974, during its mellow fall preview reel. Let's travel back to 1974 and get that mellow ABC feeling. You could be my brother And I could be your friend The road to love is there So why not take it Just open up those windows And let the new world in If we talk it out together We could make it And I could be your friend Excitement for you. 
After pitching its daytime shows, movies of the week, and theatrical TV movie premieres, ABC started pitching its new series, Happy Days, That's My Mama, Harry O, Paper Moon, Kodiak, and others. They finally got to an upcoming show called, simply, The Night Stalker. Without any footage from the upcoming series, ABC combined clips from the previous two TV movies for this promo and promised us what we see on ABC this fall we'll be talking about tomorrow. You fellas see that new show last night with Clint Walker? It was... Yeah, Kodiak. Yeah, Kodiak. Yeah, 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 that was your right. show. Yeah, yeah, I regularly right. fell out of my chair. Oh, wow. <laughs> Did you guys see the Texas Wheelers last night on ABC? <laughs> No, just family. Speaking of family, have you seen that show on ABC? The, the New, New Land. Fantastic. Hey, Tom. Yeah, Jack. You watched that Night Stalker on TV last night? That thing on ABC? Yeah. Oh, some pretty frightening stuff there, huh? Man. You know I don't scare easy. But I had to leave the room. You too? <laughs> The description of the series released to the press was Darren McGavin stars as Carl Kolchak, a hard-bitten reporter with a nose for news and an open mind, which have led him to specialize in the pursuit of stories involving strange beings and supernatural forces in The Night Stalker. New ABC Television Network suspense series, which premieres Friday, September 13th, 10 p.m. Eastern. The Night Stalker, Episode 1, The Ripper. Aired Friday, September 13th, 1974. Yes, on Friday the 13th. Featuring new theme music composed by Gil Mellet. More on that music later in Behind the Scenes. The opening segment features Carl Kolchak entering the newspaper office late at night, alone, singing a happy tune. Then the music turns sinister when he begins typing up his story. subject of novels, plays, films, even an opera. Now, here are the true facts. Reporter Carl Kolchak is living in Chicago 
and working at the INS. That's Independent News Service. And is again, or is that still, working for editor Vincenzo. Still having a somewhat antagonistic relationship with Vincenzo, Carl is continually having to explain his actions to his boss. He is assigned the Miss Emily advice column instead of working on the local murder case. A killer is murdering women in seedy areas, many of them exotic dancers, massage parlor workers, and so on. Out driving his beat in the loop, listening to police calls, Carl arrives at a scene where a suspect is being chased across rooftops and being shot at. The man wears a cape and has a creepy vintage carved derby cane and is not stopped by bullets as he jumps four stories to the pavement, throwing officers out of his way, and quickly makes his escape. Carl's co-worker, Ron Updike, is assigned to cover the murders, but clearly doesn't have the stomach for it. Against Vincenzo's orders, still investigating the murders at a police press conference, Carl has uncomfortable questions for the police captain, questioning the glossed-over story fed to the public. Meeting a colleague from a competing newspaper to compare notes on the murders, Jane Plum, also an aspiring novelist, agrees to divulge details of a letter she received, possibly from the killer, as well as her own theory of contagious psychosis causing copycat Ripper murders throughout the decades, following the original Jack the Ripper murders. Kolchak follows this up with his own research, leading him to believe the Chicago murderer, as well as the person responsible for several similar strings of murders in various places over the decades, is the original Jack the Ripper. He warns Jane to drop her investigation but she is content the revolver in her purse is sufficient protection. Not taking his own advice, Carl continues his investigation at a massage parlor, but only gets caught up in a sting operation. That same night, the Ripper attempts to strike again, but meets the same sting operation. Fleeing, he is stopped by an electrified fence and is apprehended. Carl goes for broke, and lays out his whole theory to the police captain, who, of course, has no time for Kolchak's nonsense. But his dismissal is interrupted by the superhuman Ripper ripping the maximum security jail cell door out of its concrete anchors and escaping. Remembering the details of a particularly odd Miss Emily letter from an old lady complaining about the weird habits of her neighbor, Carl finds it and visits her. Carl then checks out the neighbor's house, first setting up an electrified cable running to the main power switch outside the house. He clumsily breaks in and snoops around and has to hide when the Ripper returns. (coughs) Fleeing when he is scared out of his wits by the Ripper, Kolchak stumbles over the body of Jane Plum as he leads the Ripper to the intended destination. When the Ripper has to wade across a watery ditch, Kolchak lights him up with his jerry-rigged electric booby trap, and the Ripper turns to dust. This also sets the house on fire, and it burns to the ground. 
Here's the postscript. When they drained that pond, they found nothing, nothing but some old clothes. For some reason, the police suddenly decided they wanted those and my head. I don't know how Vincenzo will handle the charges of arson and malicious mischief lodged against me by Captain Warren, but that fire was a big one, a six-alarmer. A blast furnace couldn't have done a better job. Everything gone. The house, my story, the evidence. Like they say, ashes to ashes. One thing survived the inferno, however. There's enough of it left to read the name of the maker. Peel's Footwear, London, Southwest One. They're still there, of course, but they don't make this style shoe anymore. It was discontinued over 70 years ago. 70 years ago. How could you explain it? Who could explain it? Who would believe it? <laughs> Written by Rudolph Borchert. He is credited with writing five Night Stalkers, as well as later episodes of The Rockford Files, Chips, Greatest American Hero, and Scarecrow and Mrs. King. He died in 2005 at age 75. Directed by Alan Barron, he helmed episodes of The Brady Bunch, Love American Style, Charlie's Angels, The Love Boat, and so on, including four episodes of The Night Stalker. Guest starring Beatrice Cullen as Carl's friend Jane Plum, she may be most remembered from her role as Etta Candy on Wonder Woman, or as Marsha, the waitress on Happy Days. Ruth McDevitt was the elderly woman who lived across from the Ripper. We'll talk more about her later as she returns a few episodes from now. Don Mantooth had a walk-on role. He's the middle brother of actor Randolph Mantooth of emergency fame and will be credited for three Kolchak episodes. As this episode required a lot of stunt work, stuntman Mickey Gilbert was given the task of being the Ripper. From Ben-Hur and the Wild Bunch to the 70s disaster films Earthquake and The Towering Inferno, Gilbert has worked on well over 100 films. In the 80s, he was the stunt coordinator on The Fall Guy. Gilbert was also the stunt double for Robert Redford, jumping off the cliff in Butch Cassidy and The Sundance Kid. Commenting on the episode, director Alan Barron said, That show had a lot of good special effects. We also got some great reviews. The guy playing Jack the Ripper, Mickey Gilbert, was a stuntman. All of the scenes where he was running along the top of the building were filmed at night. We used a building that was under construction, and we shot 15 pages that night. I ran into Night Stalker's story editor David Chase recently. He said, Geez, Alan, I still can't believe you shot that sequence in one night. We did, and it turned out great. This episode was my introduction to the series, catching it on my black-and-white bedroom TV on a late 80s rerun. Having not seen either of the previous movies, it was sufficiently scary, seen in a quiet house on the weekend after midnight. 
At the time, I had no idea how repetitive the first episode was to both of the prior movies. Rudolph Borchert seemed to take elements from both, as well as most of the main story beats, and successfully combined them into a single, tight, 50-minute episode. It does seem incredible that what is essentially the same story is retread yet again to start the series. At the time of original airing, a full year and eight months had passed since The Night Strangler, and as I've mentioned before, this was the pre-VCR 1970s. TV networks got away with a lot of repetition. Some viewers may not have seen one of the previous movies, or maybe saw neither of them. Even if you saw The Night Strangler, sufficient time had gone by, allowing some of the details of this prior movie to be forgotten. Some observations. The original episode scheduled this night by ABC was what ended up being the next episode, The Zombie. And this was promoted in print ads in major markets promoting the new Friday night lineup. At the last minute, the decision was made to air The Ripper, as ABC execs felt this was a stronger episode to start off with. This meant an incorrect ad ended up running in many newspapers that day, and many TV listings incorrectly listed the zombie for that night. Some papers got the update prior to print time and were able to list the correct episode. ABC ran the same ad the following Friday again advertising the zombie. No explanation is given as to how Kolchak and Vincenzo wind up together again in Chicago, working for the same news service, nor is any real elapsed time stated. At the end of the Night Strangler, they were on their way to New York, along with potential girlfriend Louise. Likewise, no explanation is given for the virtual immortality and superhuman abilities of the Ripper. Clearly, something supernatural seemed to be involved, but we are not given the details of this. Similarities to this and the short story, Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper, by Robert Block, have been noted. Perhaps best known for writing the original novel, Psycho, Block's Ripper story was published in Weird Tales in 1943. In that story, Jack the Ripper was an immortal, and his victims were sacrifices to extend this immortality. This story is quite interesting and bears additional resemblance to the Night Strangler. Interestingly, Robert Matheson originally considered making the Night Strangler villain Jack the Ripper, but chose not to do so out of respect to Robert Block. Block's Ripper story was adapted into a 1961 episode of Thriller. Block would again visit the subject of Jack the Ripper, writing the 1967 Star Trek episode Wolf in the Fold. In that episode, Kirk and crew must deal with an immortal entity that has possessed the original Jack the Ripper and other murderers throughout time. Kolchak's demotion to Miss Emily Letterduty harks back to stories by mystery writer Fred Davis in Dime Detective Pulp Magazines in the 1940s. In those stories, crime reporter Bill Brent is demoted to the advice column, answering lovelorn letters under the pen name of Lorna Lorne. Thanks to pulp collector and researcher Walker Martin for that tidbit. Kolchak mentions driving the loop to pick up stories. 
For those not familiar, the Loop is the central business district of downtown Chicago, similar to Manhattan and Times Square. 1974 was also quite a deadly year for Chicago, as that city saw an incredible 970 homicides, up from 864 the prior year. The neighborhood of Wilton Park is mentioned, where the old lady and the ripper lived. Although there is a Wilton Avenue, there is and was no area of Chicago called Wilton Park. The Night Stalker, Episode 2, The Zombie. Aired Friday, September 20th, 1974. Popular folklore would have us believe that there exist in the underworld ruthless men who fear nothing. This story should debunk that myth. August 14th, 2 a.m. While the upper strata of the syndicate were accustomed to dealing in millions, the foundation of their fortune was here in their counting houses in the small change of the numbers racket. Mr. Albert Berg, head collections man, a graduate of an Ivy League business school. He was an incompetent even by syndicate standards. The only smart thing he'd ever done was marry the boss's sister. Willie Pike, he'd never been convicted of anything by anybody except the boxing commission. Willie took a dive into the canvas and on through into the bulletproof car set. Willie was making a bundle, a bundle he would never get to spend. Kolchak is assigned to babysit newcomer Monique, niece of an INS executive, and takes her along to a cops and mob shootout at an out-of-town farm. When the police captain doesn't let the press see the bodies, Kolchak goes to see Gordy the Ghoul, who works at the morgue, who reveals one of the bodies had been there the previous week. Further inquiries reveal a mob war between up-and-coming black-run illegal gambling rings and the established mob in Chicago. Kolchak is caught between warring gangsters, a potentially crooked police captain, and the son of a voodoo priestess who has become a Haitian zombie, seeking revenge on those who killed him. It's up to Kolchak to stop the zombie's rampage with some salt and sewing thread. With my camera in pieces, Captain Winwood's story of innocence was intact. He never stood trial for murder. My proof was gone. But that doesn't mean my story was false. Quite the contrary. Where's Monique? Her uncle's on the phone, worried sick. She's in a cab on the way to Brooklyn. She's in a cab on the way to Brooklyn. What? What'd you say? You're delighted? You didn't want her here in the first place? But why? Why? I mean, why? Item. Memeloi Edmonds was deported to her native country only one day after the events of the junkyard. Item. Captain Leo Winwood was relieved of duty for, quote, reasons of health, unquote. Item. Francoise Edmonds, the deceased, was buried a third time at public expense. A third time. However, this time, rock salt was poured in his mouth and his lips were sewn shut. City officials will deny this, but you can see it for yourself if, if you'd care to venture out to St. Lucie Cemetery and exhume the corpse. Be my guest. If you've got the nerve. 
written by Zakhail Marco and David Chase, based on a story by Marco. Marco has only a handful of acting and writing credits. David Chase served as story consultant for the series. After Kolchak, he worked on The Rockford Files, I'll Fly Away, Northern Exposure, and created a little show you may have heard of called The Sopranos. Directed by Alex Grassoff, this is the first of three Kolchak episodes Grassoff directed. He also worked on The Rockford Files, Barbary Coast, and some ABC after-school specials. He died in 2008 at age 79. Guest stars were Charles Aidman as a new police captain, Joseph Sorolla and Val Basaglio as some mobsters, Carol Ann Susie as the annoying Monique Marmelstein we'll see for three episodes. Scatman Carruthers made an appearance. J. Pat O'Malley was a cemetery caretaker. You might remember him from My Favorite Martian and Maud. And John Fieldler as Gordy the Ghoul we would also see for three episodes. A fairly prolific 60s and 70s actor, you saw him on Dobie Gillis, The Twilight Zone, Star Trek, Bewitched, The Bob Newhart Show. You might remember him as the voice of Piglet for nearly 40 years on the Winnie the Pooh cartoons and movies. This is the weakest entry yet so far, and I can see why ABC decided on The Ripper as the premiere episode. Still, it had a couple of great sequences, especially Kolchak in the back of the hearse pouring salt into the zombie's mouth, and likely one of the best of the closing monologues. So, we've had a vampire, immortal killers, and now a zombie. Now, at the time, the zombie, as the undead, flesh-eating monster we know today, had only been featured in maybe three or four movies, and had not yet been solidified in pop culture. They were more associated with Haitian folklore and voodoo rituals, and this is the zombie presented here. The Night Stalker, Episode 3. They have been. They are. They will be. Aired Friday, September 27, 1974. I knew this one was more than just the biggest story of my life. It was the biggest story in the lives of everyone on this planet. I fought for the story, fought harder than ever before, because I knew it was more than news, much more. I felt people should know about it so they could be prepared when it happened again. If it's possible to be prepared for something like this. Assigned to cover a couple of missing zoo animals, Kolchak happens on another story over the police radio and pulls up to see the exterior wall of an electronics store explode outward. Kolchak and the police then witness stacks of lead ingots disappear in front of them. Meanwhile, electronics are being stolen all over town and a thick, black substance is being found. Kolchak's investigating leads him to a planetarium, a therapy group for alien contactees, and ultimately to what seems to be a landed alien craft in the woods. Written by Rudolph Borchert, based on a story by Dennis Clark. Directed by Alan Barron. 
guest-starring James Gregory as yet another once-seen police captain. Not sure how many police captains there would be in the city of Chicago. This very recognizable actor is probably best remembered as Inspector Luger from Barney Miller. Mary Wicks, Maureen Arthur, and Dick Van Patten round out the guest cast. Jack Greenwich returns as Ron Updike, and we saw Gordy the Ghoul and Monique Marmelstein in this episode. It's the UFO episode. In fact, UFO was a working title found on the scripts, of which there were reportedly several rewrites. And I'm not surprised. This story is so convoluted with several plot details that are hard to keep straight, it really needed another rewrite to simplify it. Recall, too, that the third planned Kolchak movie had been The Night Killers, the story revolving around a UFO, so it's interesting we got a UFO story this early in the series. The title is a take from a quote in H.P. Lovecraft's Necronomicon, in his story The Dunwich Horror, which goes, The old ones were, the old ones are, and the old ones shall be, not in the spaces we know, but between them. They walk serene and primal, undimensioned, and to us, unseen. With this episode, we also got a behind-the-camera shakeup we'll explore extensively in Behind the Scenes. The Night Stalker, Episode 4, The Vampire Aired Friday, October 4th, 1974. They were tearing up an old road to Laymore Freeway, a few miles south of Las Vegas. The state of Nevada's Department of Highways digging would be a help to thousands of motorists. But to one other person, it would turn out to be a nightmare. An airline stewardess has a flat tire on the outskirts of Las Vegas. She cuts her finger and awakens a female vampire, which arises from the dirt on the side of the road. Through an old reporter friend, Carl hears about three bodies found west of Vegas, out toward Los Angeles, missing an inordinate amount of blood. Wanting to take a trip to check this out, Kolchak tricks Vincenzo, into being assigned a story to cover in L.A. When he gets there, he connects with a would-be reporter, real estate agent. He conscripts into writing his story, while he investigates the vampire. The local police lieutenant blames local Satan worshippers for the killings. Suddenly, Kolchak finds himself in a very familiar situation, trying to explain the situation to the police. The female vampire has continued her Vegas occupation as a lady of the evening in L.A. Kolchak books an appointment with her, prepared to destroy her just as he did with Janos Skorzeny. When the agency sends the wrong girl, he goes out to find her, finally catching her at a creepy house. Well, she almost catches him. Lighting the Hollywood Cross near the property on fire to immobilize her, 
Kolchak does what he has to do, and yet another vampire is destroyed. Mateo had a detective tailing me, but he lost me about the time Catherine found me. I wasn't particularly hard to find after that. It was just a question of following the light. I was told it could be seen from the Sunset Strip, West Los Angeles, and Malibu. It was a local landmark, so I had to pay for another one, and I didn't mind at all. I just couldn't think of a way to get it on the expense account. They booked me for murder, just like I thought they would. But then, after 12 hours, they let me go. They never did say why. But as I was sitting in Lieutenant Mateo's office, waiting for execution, I happened to see a coroner's report on Catherine Rollins. I quote the coroner. The tissue structure of the individual appeared to be that of a female, species human, who had been dead at least three years. This is a medical conundrum for which I have no explanation. Three years. Written by David Chase, based on a story by Bill Stratton. Directed by newcomer Don Weiss, in the first of four episodes he would helm, he had directed episodes of The Immortal, Planet of the Apes, and Ironside. He would later work on Starsky and Hutch, MASH, Chips, The Love Boat, Fantasy Island, and Hill Street Blues. He worked until 1990 and died in 2000 at age 78. Guest starring Suzanne Charney as Catherine Rollins, the vampire. She didn't have any dialogue and only hissed. F Troop's Larry Storch, Jan Murray, Kathleen Nolan, and William Daniels as the L.A. police lieutenant round out the guest cast. After a couple of weak episodes, a true return to form for the series as Kolchak encounters a vampire, a presumed victim of Janos Skorzeny, the Las Vegas vampire, three years ago from the first movie, although this is not explicitly stated. It might be a little repetitive, but was played with enough fresh elements to keep it from being boring. Having the vampire keep her job as a prostitute was a great idea, as was the decision to not give her any dialogue. The ending sequence at the Hollywood Cross was memorable, although obviously they did not light the actual monument on fire, but rather used a backlot mock-up. By now we've come to see the Kolchak story formula, used in five of the six stories we've seen. Monster is established, Kolchak investigates, Kolchak wrestles the feathers of the local police with questions, police don't take him seriously, Kolchak has to go out on his own to confront the monster, police show up for the reveal, Kolchak is run out of town or told to shut up about the case or has his story squashed by Vincenzo. How long can a formula like this be used in a weekly series? According to new producer Cy Shermack, this is the formula that Darren McGavin wanted to continue using, but one that couldn't be constantly reused on a weekly basis. Still, he liked this episode.
For some reason, The Vampire really works for me. I think it's my favorite of the episodes. I love the cross-burning. There is a little bit of controversy over whose idea that was, but that can happen after 23 years. I thought it was my idea. Rudy Borchert says he thinks it was his idea, and it might very well have been. The creepy mansion used at the end of the episode looks like the same one used in the Dan Curtis TV movie The Norless Tapes from the previous year. After a four-week break, a result of new producer Cy Shermack shutting down show production as he retooled characters as well as the show title, the series returns as... Kolchak, the Night Stalker, Episode 5, The Werewolf. Aired Friday, November 1st, 1974. Admittedly, the story you're about to read is bizarre, incredible. Those of you who wish to avoid being unsettled, who wish to avoid thinking, will label it insane. And though you, the reader, would find these facts almost impossible to substantiate, that does not change their nature. Facts they are. I know. I saw them happen. Yellowstone County, Montana, December 11th. Horrified local authorities investigated the gruesome deaths of four area residents, the Rockwell family, mother, father, and two children. All had been discovered strewn around their isolated farm, their bodies mutilated. An official coroner's report stated they had been dead three days. Cause of death? Attack by wolves. Fact. The last sighting of a wolf in Yellowstone County occurred in 1948. Fact. In the entire history of this continent, there has never been one documented case of attack by wolves on a human being. That year, Chicago was having one of its worst winters in history. But Christmas was merry. Our office even had a party, the first since Lindbergh soloed the Atlantic. The festivities were the idea of Edith Cowles, our office mother and founder of my favorite riddle column. The Asian flu had decimated our staff, but the party had accomplished its end. That of bidding a fond adieu and bon voyage to Tony Vincenzo, who was finally taking a long-awaited vacation aboard the cruise ship Hanover. He wasn't paying for the cruise, of course. He had wangled it as his own feature story, and the New York office was picking up the tab. No, 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 sir. That's in the office next door. Will you shut up a minute? Shh, shh. A sudden accounting investigation at Christmas time means Vincenzo's planned ocean cruise vacation is canceled. In his place, he sends Kolchak to go and write stories on the single scene aboard. Once underway, unknown to the passengers, a werewolf has attacked the bridge crew during dinner. Roaming the ship, he attacks and kills several passengers, and Kolchak witnesses the monster. Kolchak takes it on himself to round up the needed supplies to dispatch the weekly monster, which includes stealing the captain's silver buttons. Written by David Chase and Paul Playden. Directed by Alan Barron. Guest starring Dick Gaudier and Nita Talbot as Swinging Singles, Henry Jones as our captain, and Eric Braden as an effectively disturbed wolfman. He was Professor Forbin on the classic Colossus, The Forbin Project. An episode with an interesting, creepy idea, being trapped on a cruise ship with a werewolf on board. Unfortunately, the episode is well known for its inadequate makeup job on said werewolf, even by 70s TV standards. 
as well as for its odd, abrupt ending. Yes, it could be argued Cousin Lester on the Munsters looked better than this TV werewolf. The script was one that Playden and Chase had written before Cy Shermack came on board and originally was much longer, causing some to speculate if it was intended to be either a TV movie or a two-part episode. The episode was filmed aboard the RMS Queen Mary. The Cunard White Star Ocean Liner was retired from service in 1967 and bought by the city of Long Beach, California, who converted it into a museum, hotel, and tourist attraction in 1971. Despite Kolchak's claim during the opening voiceover, there have been numerous documented instances of humans being attacked by wolves. And we saw the return of Ruth McDevitt, the old lady letter writer from The Ripper. This time, her character is called Edith Cowles, identified as the office mother who writes the Riddles column. In later episodes, her name is inexplicably changed to Emily Cowles, advice columnist and society writer. Nobody ever accused this series of being a model of continuity. Additional thought on the title. The original Night Stalker referred to Janos Skorzeny in the first film. Now, with six instances of defeating paranormal foes, Kolchak has himself become the one who stalks the night, albeit reluctantly. Not to murder and not in search of blood, but to protect his city against the paranormal entities that inhabit it. He is now the Night Stalker. a vampire picture you can really get your teeth into. The return of Count Yorga. A vampire lover returns from the dead to seek a mate from the living. One never knows when he might encounter some of the more unusual truths that exist in this world. See the return of Count Yorga in color rated GP. It's Kenner's new stretch monster. Look out, Stretch Armstrong! This will stop Stretch Monster! No, it won't! He's draining himself! We'll meet again, Shorty! Stretch Monster, new from Kenner. Stretch Armstrong, sold separately. Kolchak, the Night Stalker, Episode 6, Firefall. Aired Friday, November 8th, 1974. Remember the penny arcades that used to be so much fun when you were a kid? For a handful of coins, you could test your strength, your skill at a pinball machine. Those arcades were a lot of things to a lot of kids. But there was one particular arcade that represented something special for me. It was here that began one of the most terrifying experiences of my life. When an impatient orchestra conductor cuts off a hearse leading a funeral procession, the spirit of the dead passenger, a murdered gangster who loved classical music, latches onto him and creates a doppelganger, a vengeful look-alike ghost that can cause his enemies to spontaneously combust 
when they fall asleep. With the doppelganger directly threatening Kolchak, he finds he must exhume the body and command the spirit to return, which triggers bursts of flame all around. Written by Bill S. Ballinger and directed by Don Weiss. Ballinger had been a writer on the 1959 Mike Hammer and Alfred Hitchcock Presents. This is the first of two episodes he would write. Guest starring Fred Bear, Philip Carey, Madeline Rue, and David Doyle. A rather interesting, unpredictable change of pace compared to the extremely formulaic stories we've seen so far. The show escaped cancellation after this episode, with the first round of mid-season show cancellations announced the following week. And this is the last appearance of Carol and Susie as Monique Marmelstein, one of the casualties of the Cy Shermack production shakeup. Discovered by Darren McGavin and his wife waiting tables at Hamburger Hamlet, they got her an audition at Universal and convinced Paul Playden to write a part for her. Unknown to her at the time, studio executives didn't take to the character, and she was eliminated. Now I know that people didn't agree on the character. Back then I thought it was me. I was only 22 years old. I knew nothing about studio politics. I thought I must be a bad actress. I thought it was me they didn't like. Period. I thought my acting must be horrible. I was devastated. That's where you go when you're 22. She was under this misunderstanding for about five years, and during that time went back to waitressing, until David Chase sat at her table and clarified that it was simply a studio decision to eliminate the character, not a result of her acting. She had kind words for her experience working with Darren McGavin. I used a lot of myself for Monique. I was young, I was from New York, and like Monique, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a clue, but I loved every minute of the show, and I loved working with Darren. He couldn't have been nicer to me. He made me feel at ease right away. The first day, he said to me, Do you know your lines? I said, Oh, yeah. He said, Good, because I don't know mine, so run them with me. Then one day, they gave us all new lines to learn, and I panicked. Darren calmed me right down and said, Now don't worry, we're going to learn them, you and I, together. It's not our fault we have new lines. Everybody was very nice to me. They were very patient, because they knew I was a complete novice. We also get a glimpse of a pre-video game arcade circa 1974, complete with pinball and fortune-telling machines such as Zoltan, a 1969 coin-operated amusement produced by Profitron, Incorporated, of Milton, Massachusetts. Zoltan had an antiqued gilt fiberglass cabinet on a pedestal that contained the fortune-telling character with crystal ball. Players would deposit a coin, select a birth month, and lift a phone receiver to hear a personalized message delivered from the wise Zoltan. Not to be confused with Zoltar Speaks, seen in the movie Big, a completely different amusement. Whose voice was used for Zoltan? Who created it? And how does this tie in to classic TV? Hear the full story behind Zoltan 
on the next Forgotten TV Supplemental Podcast for Patreon supporters. Kolchak, The Night Stalker, Episode 7, The Devil's Platform. Aired Friday, November 15th, 1974. The old cliche that politics makes strange bedfellows is only too true. At one time or another, various and sundry politicians have found themselves, when it proved expedient, of course, sharing a blanket with the military, organized crime, disgruntled gun-toting dairy farmers, the church, famous athletes, the comedians. The list is endless. But there was a senatorial race not so long ago right here in Illinois, where the strangest bedfellow of all was found under the sheets. The strangest, and certainly the most terrifying. Kolchak happens upon an elevator crash which kills the campaign manager of a state senatorial candidate, one Robert Palmer. When the elevator opens, a Rottweiler charges out after Kolchak takes a picture of it, leaving behind the medallion that was on its neck. The Rottweiler later disappears from the developed photo. Pursuing an interview with Palmer, the Rottweiler attacks Carl and takes back the medallion. Opponents of Palmer continue to die in bizarre circumstances. Investigating, Kolchak finds a photo of Palmer wearing the same medallion the dog had. Sneaking into the Palmer house, Palmer calmly confirms his suspicions that he indeed was serving the devil in exchange for political success and offers Kolchak much the same deal, showing a great deal of insight into Kolchak's own ambitions. Kolchak must deny his insatiable desires to battle Palmer in Rottweiler form. Written by Don Mullally from a story by Tim Mashler, Mullally was a writer known for TV westerns and detectives. This was the second credit for Mashler, He worked on a number of your typical 70s, 80s TV shows, including three episodes of Bring Em Back Alive and the final episode of WizKids. This was the last episode directed by Alan Barron. Guest starring Jeannie Cooper, Julie Gregg, and Tom Skerritt in a somewhat early role. Well, it had to happen at some point. Kolchak versus the devil. Sort of. For all the build-up to the conclusion as well as considering who Kolchak was dealing with by proxy, the resolution in this episode seemed far too easy. Interestingly, the role didn't make much of an impression on Tom Skerritt. When Mark DeWoodziak asked for a comment on his Night Stalker appearance, Skerritt replied, I really have no memory of that show at all. I was doing a lot of episodic television at the time. I was very busy. I was going from one show to another, and a lot of it blurs together. I just don't remember doing that one. Sorry. The similarities between this episode and the Omen movie series are also interesting. Rottweilers are used in the Omen films as hellhounds, and Omen 3, The Final Conflict, depicts Damien in a position of political power. Kolchak predates the Omen movies, by nearly two years. Kolchak, The Night Stalker, Episode 8, Bad Medicine. Aired Friday, November 29th, 1974.
As Scott Fitzgerald once wrote, the rich are different than you and me. They sure are. They got more money. But there wasn't enough money in the world to save some of the members of Chicago's upper crust from a fiendish force so dark it can only be called diabolic. Chicago's rich and super rich are no different from the privileged few of New York's Sutton Place or the nouveau riche of Los Angeles. They enjoy a highly protected environment. November 12th, 11.20 p.m. Rhonda June Marquet, real name Adele Saperstein, was coming home after an unusually successful day. Miss Marquet was chairman of the board of Maison de Marquet Incorporated, manufacturers of the famous Rhonda June Brazier line, a longtime bulwark of the garment industry serving women from 8 to 80. She designed her first bra in 44 when she was an aircraft worker in Glendale. Miss Marquet had a well-known proclivity for fine gems and was reputed to have some of the biggest diamonds in Chicago. Wealthy Chicago women are dying with their expensive jewels disappearing. Following a police radio call to the gem exchange where the safe was ripped open, Kolchak and the police witness a tall, Native American man who battles police and leaps off the building, only to disappear. He is a Diabolero, a tribal sorcerer with the power to transform into animals and throw their victims into a trance, cursed to roam the earth, to amass a treasure, to repay the gods for the one he stole from them. Written by the writing team of L. Ford Neal and John Huff, this was this writing team's first effort, and they both got their Writers Guild card by writing for Kolchak. They would write two more episodes. After this, they worked on Chips and wrote episodes of Tales of the Gold Monkey and Street Hawk. Directed by Alex Grassoff. Guest starring Victor Jory, Ramon Beery, Marvin Kaplan, and Richard Keel as the Diabolero. I have mixed thoughts about this one. While I give them credit for choosing another original antagonist as we are clearly headed away from the standard vampires and werewolves per the direction Cy Shermack has given, it's disappointing to see the Native American character portrayed by a white actor. While this is far from the most egregious example of whitewashing, Richard Keel was fine as the Diabolero. It would have been interesting to see someone like Will Sampson cast in this role, lending additional authenticity to the story. Kolchak, The Night Stalker, Episode 9, The Spanish Moss Murders. Aired Friday, December 6th, 1974. Maybe you have to brush with death before you can really reflect on life, on the people and times that really meant something to you, like childhood. Dreams of sailing on silver seas and wooden shoes. Visions of sugar plums dancing. Silver seas, sugar plums. The visions, the nightmares of a child are perhaps the most frightening and horrifying of any human animal can conjure. Some people who were in Chicago during the first stifling hot weeks of July would say that was so. If they were still alive. A nightmare bayou swamp creature known as the Paré Malfate has come to life out of the dreamless state of an unconscious sleep research subject 
and has begun to kill, crushing its victims until they are dead. It can only be stopped by a spear made of bayou gumwood, and soon it's Kolchak versus the Bayou Boogeyman in the sewers of Chicago. Written by Alvin R. Friedman and David Chase, based on a story by Friedman. Directed by Gordon Hessler in his only Kolchak episode, he would go on to direct Kung Fu, Wonder Woman, Chips, and The Master. Guest-starring prolific actor Keenan Wynn as yet another new police captain. Severin Darden, Virginia Gregg, Elizabeth Brooks in her first role, and Richard Keel returns as the Perret Malfate. But we don't really see him. It's difficult to determine whether the Perret Malfate was a real Cajun legend prior to this episode. I found conflicting and inconclusive information online. However, there are a number of regional legends of moss men and swamp creatures for the writers to have chosen from for inspiration, such as the Honey Island Swamp Monster, the Folk Monster, the Skunk Ape, and others. Or they could have been inspired by Swamp Thing or Man Thing from the world of comics, both of which had runs in 1974. Certainly a highlight of this episode was the appearance of Keenan Wynn as the new police captain trying to keep his cool. New to us, but clearly Kolchak had a history with him. You might remember Wynn as the only Twilight Zone character to ever talk back to Rod Serling in A World of His Own. He'll return in one more episode. Kolchak, The Night Stalker, Episode 10 the Energy Eater. Aired Friday, December 13th, 1974. The city of Chicago sparkles with architectural monuments to man's achievement, his artistic aspirations, his quest for the truth, his respect for the law. Now a different sort of monument. There is a theory that dying institutions erect their own mausoleums before they die. This particular monument was to be a hospital and a research center, dedicated to extending the life of man, improving the quality of that life. It succeeded instead in introducing a new horror, a new way of death, a mystery. I became involved just after the hospital's completion, covering the dedication. The building's construction had been a little rocky. Two Indian high steel workers had fallen off the top floors, but that was quickly forgotten and never explained. No matter, now it was dedication time and everything was roses. It was all I could do to stay awake. A hospital opening is marred by power outages, cracks in the foundation, and patients dying as the construction has awakened Machimonito, an ancient Native American bear-like spirit. Kolchak enlists the expertise of Native American Jim Elkhorn to learn how to tame the restless spirit. But when hospital administration act on Kolchak's warnings, Kolchak may find himself a casualty of their efforts to battle the invisible force. Written by Arthur Rowe and Rudolph Borchert, this is the first of two episodes Rowe would have a hand in writing, and he would later work on The Bionic Woman and Fantasy Island. Directed by Alex Grassoff, guest-starring William Smith, Elaine Giftos, and Joyce Jilson. 
She was the official astrologer for 20th Century Fox Studios, suggesting movie release dates, and later became astrologer for Nancy and Ronald Reagan. This episode may have been short on time because the entire opening credits were used for giving us aerial shots of Chicago. Another Invisible Monster episode, but this one is pretty effective, primarily due to the pyrotechnics and the reconstructed X-ray film photo of Machimonito. Machimonito was believed in by the Potawatomi, an Algonquian Indian tribe, as one of two spirits who governed the world. Kichimonito, the great spirit, and Machimonito, the evil spirit, although it is thought these beliefs are the result of the influence of Christian ideas and that before European colonialism, the Potawatomi worshipped the sun. I also thought it was interesting that instead of using a legendary way to dispatch the monster, modern science is used. Kolchak, The Night Stalker, Episode 11, Horror in the Heights. Aired Friday, December 20th, 1974. There are sections of Chicago the guidebooks don't refer to. You can't blame them, really. The guidebooks function is to sell the glamour and excitement of our windy city. And whichever way you dress it up, old age is neither glamorous nor exciting. Roosevelt Heights used to be a plush neighborhood. But the plush neighbors moved uptown, leaving the old people. And old people don't move easily. They become set in their surroundings. Their friends live next door. They've been going to the same store for 25 years. And probably most important of all, they can't afford to relocate, even if they wanted to. The battle of fixed income versus galloping inflation never ends. But even inflation took a backseat here in Roosevelt Heights, as a far greater fear overtook the residents, a terror which effectively dwarfed everything else. October 14th, one Harry Starman was about to break the law. He'd done it before, many times. Gambling on Friday night was forbidden by Hebrew law. So, to escape his wife and to escape going to Temple, Harry and his cohorts took drastic measures. There were other residents of Roosevelt Heights. The locals had tried to get rid of them a couple of times, but what with the fact that the garbage collection wasn't as efficient as it could have been, they just hadn't been too successful. A Jewish neighborhood begins to have residents found dead, and some residents suspect an Indian man, the owner of a new Indian restaurant. They think has been painting swastikas in the alleys. But the deaths are the work of a Rakshasa, a Hindu man-eating monster that appears in disguise as someone the victim trusts. Written by Jimmy Sangster in his only Kolchak episode, he wrote a bunch of Hammer horror films, including The Curse of Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula, The Revenge of Frankenstein, The Mummy, 1959, The Brides of Dracula, and The Horror of Frankenstein. Directed by Michael T. Caffey in his only Kolchak episode, other directing work includes episodes of Gemini Man, Logan's Run, Wonder Woman, The Amazing Spider-Man, Barnaby Jones, Chips, and a lot of others. Guest starring Phil Silvers, Murray Matheson, Abraham Sofair, and Benny Rubin. I have to say the monster was great in this one. When you see it at the end, it was quite effective. Here we have another creature drawn from existing legend, 
the Rakshasa, appears in the ancient Sanskrit epics Ramayana and the Mahabharata as insatiable man-eating creatures that could fly, disappear, and have powers of illusion or shape-shifting abilities to assume the form of any creature. The swastika appears numerous times in this episode. This may be disturbing to some today, but as brought out in the episode, the symbol is very old. The earliest appearance dates to 10,000 BCE in Ukraine, and the symbol appears in the histories of numerous cultures worldwide. In Hinduism, the symbol with arms pointing clockwise is called swastika, symbolizing Surya, or sun, prosperity, and good luck, while the counterclockwise symbol is called Savastika, symbolizing night or tantric aspects of Kali. Both versions appear in this episode. So here we are past the halfway point through the series, and at the end, they start doing this wink to the audience at the end of some episodes, where Carl looks at the camera as he's concluding his story as if he's aware of the audience. Kolchak, The Night Stalker, Episode 12, Mr. R.I.N.G. Aired Friday, January 10th, 1975. I don't know when exactly I was in this office last. In some ways it seems like I never left. But no, no, that's not right. It, no, for at least a few days I was away. Far away in the hands of men with no faces and no names. They broke me down, broke my story down, telling me how it hadn't happened the way I claimed. At least I think that's what they did. Between injections. Memories fade fast enough without chemical help, and if I don't tell this story now, I don't think I ever will. What was that date? April 2nd, Sunday, 11.25 p.m. Professor Avery Walker was working late. Professor Walker was a member of a crack team of researchers, but tonight he was working alone. He had received specific orders, and being a fastidious man, he intended carrying out those orders to the letter. A shaken Kolchak relates the story to us. While Ron goes home to San Francisco, Kolchak is assigned the obituaries. While investigating a simple obit, he is followed by the government and stumbles on a top-secret government program called Ring. Robomatic, internalized nerve ganglia. An android. But is he a killer or just misunderstood? Written by the writing team of L. Ford Neal and John Huff. Directed by Gene Levitt, the writer-producer-director worked in television as early as 1951, writing episodes of Front Page Detective and Mr. District Attorney. In the 70s, he began producing shows like Barnaby Jones and SWAT, as well as directing on occasion. Guest-starring Julie Adams, Coran Michaels, Bert Freed, and Craig Baxley as Mr. R.I.N.G. This episode brings us into the new year of 1975 and a new time slot 
as ABC moves the series to 8 p.m., 7 central on Mountain, now airing against Sanford and Son and Chico and the Man over at NBC, the highest-rated television hour on the weekly schedule. While CBS gave Planet of the Apes TV series the boot in favor of new extremely short-lived detective series, Con. I'll have more comments on the time change later. There's a great bit where Kolchak notices he's being surveilled and pulls his car next to the other one and makes a smart-alecky comment, reminding me very much of a scene from the current season of Mindhunter when Wayne Williams brings takeout to the FBI agents tailing him. Also, note the name of the Tyrell Institute that manufactures androids. Seven years later, in the 1982 film Blade Runner, the Tyrell Corporation produces androids known as replicants. Coincidence? One other neat tie-in, actor Reed Morgan appears in a bit part here. Not only was he the Octoman in the 1971 film Octoman, in 1964 he was Adam on the Outer Limits episode I, Robot. Kolchak, The Night Stalker, Episode 13, Primal Scream. Aired Friday, January 17, 1975. During World War II, close to this very spot, science bore a child that changed the course of human relations. And to this day, threatens to end human history. It was called, innocuously enough, the Manhattan Project. And it grew into the terror we all have come to know as the hydrogen bomb. But this year, only a stone's throw from here, science delivered a new child. November 8th, 1220 a.m. Dr. Jules Kopernik, Ph.D. in experimental biology and co-director of related research at Oceanic International Oil Corporation, returned to his place of employ after a month-long absence. He had been attending a world ecology conference in Helsinki and came right to his lab after debarking a plane. Dr. Kopernik was homesick for the lab and the equipment that was under his control. And it was this fastidious devotion to his work that cut off his life at age 43. When covering a story on a dead biologist with his arm ripped out of its socket, Kolchak looks into the international oil company he worked for and who recently drilled ice cores in the Arctic. The company has brought back more than ice cores, when a prehistoric man breaks loose and rampages throughout the city. Written by Bill S. Ballinger and David Chase. Directed by Robert Shearer. He was a producer on The Danny Kay Show and later directed a number of episodes of Fame, The Love Boat, and Star Trek The Next Generation. Guest starring John Marley, Pat Harrington Jr., Jamie Farr, Barbara Rhodes, and Gary Baxley, as the humanoid. He was a stuntman on the series, uncredited as most are, and he later became the stunt coordinator on Enos, Bring Him Back Alive, and Sliders. Several tidbits here. The script was originally titled The Humanoids, but this title was changed at the last minute, with many TV listings printing the original title. This was based on an idea by Darren McGavin, who had read a piece in Time magazine about Antarctic ice cores containing amoebas thousands of years old but still alive. I didn't even recognize Pat Harrington Jr. when his scene came on, 
He, of course, played Schneider on the original One Day at a Time. The movie playing on TV on one scene, which foreshadows the scene of horror about to take place, was none other than Lon Chaney in 1944's The Mummy's Ghost. In the opening narration, Kolchak refers to the Manhattan Project, which happened close to this very spot. While the actual atomic bomb lab was in Los Alamos, New Mexico, theoretical research on plutonium done at the Metallurgical Laboratory at the University of Chicago made the Manhattan Project possible. There was a great moment for Kolchak as he actually managed to get a picture of the monster with Vincenzo pleased and putting his story on the wire, but it is killed by the higher-ups at INS. The ending was very reminiscent of the Spanish Moss murders, with a return visit to the exact same set used in that episode's conclusion, only this time not filled with water and with the additional lights removed. Kolchak, The Night Stalker, Episode 14, The Trevi Collection. Aired Friday, January 24th, 1975. Tuesday, May 2nd, 1 p.m. Mickey Patrick was a dealer, a snitch, a peddler of information. His clothes were as cheap as his reputation. So when he phoned me with some information to sell, I was surprised that he wanted to meet me in the heart of Chicago's shishi high fashion district. What started out as a mild surprise culminated in stark raving terror. Leaving a fashion show, a man falls out a multi-story window to his death in front of Kolchak. Soon other mysterious things happen. A model gets burned to death by her own shower. A driverless car careens after Kolchak in the street. Another model accuses fashion designer Madame Trevi of witchcraft, which has Carl visiting covens and interviewing experts on the occult. But is Trevi the real threat, or is it someone else? And what must Kolchak do when he finally confronts the real witch. Written by Rudolph Borchert and directed by Don Weiss. With Nina Folk, Marvin Miller, a pre-love boat Bernie Capel, a walk-on by Priscilla Morell, you may remember her from Mary Tyler Moore, and Lara Parker. Parker was the big selling point of this episode. She, of course, was the witch Angelique in Dark Shadows. Or was she a vampire? A creepy, cool episode by Borchard and Weiss. Kolchak hasn't been so hands-on defeating a baddie since the vampire. By now, we're just about three-quarters into the series, and the relentless shooting schedule has been getting to the crew. I'll go into more detail on this later in Behind the Scenes. Lara Parker didn't walk on to the happiest of sets, as she recalls. Darren McGavin was working very, very hard, so he was sort of withdrawn and not very accessible during that episode. Yes, we worked at night, and yes, the hours were long. They'd already done more than half the episodes at that point, and I think nerves were a little frayed around the edges. But it was a nice part, a fun part. I had my head held underwater. I had purple spots all over my face while I turned into a raving maniac. I had to freak out yelling and screaming. I'm very game, but long hours and all, he wasn't very nice to work with. He was very short-tempered. 
When I'd be yelling, he'd be saying, Don't do that. Don't do it that way. He was trying to tell me how to play a witch. It was a fun part, but to be honest, it wasn't the most fun acting experience I ever had. Acting veteran Nina Folk had plenty of horror and thriller under her belt as she had been in 1943's The Return of the Vampire with Bela Lugosi, 1944's Cry of the Werewolf, and multiple appearances in Suspense and The Outer Limits, not to mention her classic film roles in The Ten Commandments, Spartacus, and An American in Paris. Kolchak, The Night Stalker, Episode 15, Chopper. Aired Friday, January 31st, 1975. The teenage years, 16 candles, fervent passions, aimless joy rides and the forbidden taste of beer. A time the world allows for sowing one's wild oats. But for some individuals I came to know in the summer of their discontent. It had been a time when they had sown the seeds of their own destruction. Chicago's outskirts April 5th, the Cook County Warehouse and Impound Yard. It had been the center of considerable controversy. One of Chicago's largest cemeteries, the Hills of Lethe, had been sold to a real estate developer who was going to erect condominiums. The former occupants of Hills of Lethe had to be moved. In spite of the care that was taken, there were some mistakes and oversights. In one case, the oversight was very small, but it blossomed into a flower of evil. 10.45 p.m., Mrs. Rita Baker, widowed, age 62, had lived this hard, spare life and had become a hopeless insomniac. But on the night of February 5th, she had managed to doze off for a while. arrived, they agreed the 1956 model BSA motorcycle had been stolen. Item, the police never did answer how a 20-year-old motorcycle, rusted and long since drained of gas and oil, had roared out into the chill Cicero night. When the deceased occupants of a cemetery are moved to make way for new condominiums, a headless ghost motorcycle rider with a sword begins terrorizing Chicago. The headless rider was originally a member of a biker gang that had been decapitated. Kolchak must find his head and reunite it with his body to put the vengeful ghost to rest. Written by Steve Fisher and David Chase, this is Fisher's only Kolchak episode. From a story by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, the writing team that would bring us Back to the Future 10 years later. Directed by Bruce Kessler, Known for his work on McCloud, Greatest American Hero, Hardcastle and McCormick, and The Fall Guy, this was his only Kolchak episode. Guest starring Larry Linville as yet another new police captain. Art Metrano, Jim Backus, Jay Robinson, and Jesse White as a security guard. You might remember him as the Maytag repairman. Uncredited stuntman Steve Boyum was the headless Harleyman. He later became the stunt coordinator on 1987's 
Werewolf. This one is a groaner, primarily due to the terrible headless rider effect, complete with plastic sword dangling on a string while Boyum rode the motorcycle with both hands. This is obviously a 70s take on the headless horseman. This was Bob Zemeckis' first professional sale as a rider, and he admits its 19th century origins. We knew they needed ideas and scripts. The show had trouble because they needed a new monster every week. And after they had done a werewolf, a vampire, and a zombie, they said, Oh no, we're running out of monsters. So Bob and I saw this and thought, if we could create a folklore that they could plug into the series, we might get our first sale. We started out with a sort of Legend of Sleepy Hollow thing, and we combined that with the 50s biker idea. And they bought it. I thought it came off very funny. They kept all the main elements of the story. The rewriting that was done was because we didn't understand the limitations of television. Obviously, I've always loved this kind of stuff, but that's not why we wrote Chopper. We did it because we perceived this vacuum. Now I tell students, don't try to sell a spec script to a hit show. They have a staff of writers and more scripts than they know what to do with. Sell one to a show that's having trouble finding writers. That was Night Stalker. If you come along with the right idea, they'll recognize that it's good for their show. This idea was reused in 2001 in the horror comedy The Chronicle in the episode Bring Me the Head of Tucker Burns on the Sci-Fi Channel. Kolchak, The Night Stalker, Episode 16, Demon in Lace. Aired Friday, February 7th, 1975. It was Goethe who said we love girls for what they are. Well, even the great Goethe could have learned something from the tale that took place on the campus of Illinois State Tech. May 10th, 1102, Don Weiner, the school's star running back and candidate for All-American, was out for a drive. Don never did make All-American. While out in the country on assignment, Kolchak stumbles on the mysterious death of a healthy college jock, dropping dead of a heart attack, the second such death that has happened. Kolchak investigates, assisted by a college reporter, and they find an archaeology professor has been translating an ancient Mesopotamian tablet, which has aroused a succubus that seduces young men and scares them to death. To stop the succubus, the ancient tablet must be destroyed. Written by Stephen Lord and Michael Kozel and David Chase. And this was the final episode directed by Don Weiss. Keenan Wynn returns as police captain Mad Dog Siska. Jackie Vernon and Carolyn Jones also appear in brief scenes. Christina Holland was Rosalind, the college reporter. She was the voice of Alice the Daughter on Wait Till Your Father Gets Home. There's a lot of things implied and unstated here, stuff they just couldn't get past the BS department in this new early time slot. 
While the TV movies in very early episodes didn't shy away from the seamy side of Las Vegas, Seattle, or Chicago massage parlors, exotic dancing, and prostitutes, as we got further into the series, these elements were dropped. A succubus in folklore was a supernatural being that would engage in sexual activity with a male as he slept. The word originated in the 14th century and in Latin suggested to lie beneath, referring to an implied sexual position. In pre-scientific times, this was likely used to explain sleep paralysis, or the common nocturnal experiences of boys and men. The episode glosses over the mythology of the succubus sexually extracting the life out of the men, likely a little much for a 7 p.m. show, and uses the plot contrivance of scaring them to death during amorous situations. Another sufficiently creepy episode brought to us by Don Weiss. Stephen Lord had written two episodes of The Outer Limits, the Sun Classic Pictures pseudo-documentary The Bermuda Triangle, and was an uncredited writer on Hangar 18, also featuring Darren McGavin. Kolchak, The Night Stalker, Episode 17, Legacy of Terror. Aired Friday, February 14th, 1975. Among the philosophers, the great thinkers, and the common Joes of this world, no question is more controversial than truth. Remarkable as it may seem, I can attest that the following events did occur, whether you believe them to be true or not. Monday, September 22nd, one of the brightest spots in professional football was Lenny Strahan, maybe the best linebacker in the history of the game. Lenny played with fractures, sprains, torn ligaments, and bone chips. They said he had the biggest heart in the NFL. But on September 22nd, some maniac cut out that big heart with a very dull knife. Late for an important PR meeting at a hotel, Kolchak stumbles onto a series of killings where the victims' hearts have been cut out, ancient Aztec style. Sneaking around, he also finds an Aztec mummy in the hotel basement. The last sacrifice is to be made willingly by someone who has enjoyed the life of Riley for the last year, but when he gets cold feet, the mummy rises to demand a sacrifice. Written by Arthur Rowe and directed by Don McDougall in the first of two episodes he would direct. Guest starring Eric Estrada, Ramon Beery as yet another new police captain. Sorrel Book, you might remember him as Boss Hogg on Dukes of Hazard, And stuntman Mickey Gilbert was the mummy. Here, Ramon Beery returns as a police captain with a different name than the one he played in Bad Medicine. Again, nobody ever accused this series of having great continuity, or sometimes even editing. The final scene where the camera lingers on the mummy reveals Mickey Gilbert opening his eyes before the fade to credits. The Aztec headdress, worn by Eric Estrada, was originally used in the 1947 movie Captain from Castile, worn by the Aztec commander Kakamatsun. This is the last of the four lost episodes, which I'll talk about later in Behind the Scenes. Kolchak, The Night Stalker, Episode 18, The Nightly Murders. 
aired Friday, March 7, 1975. Tuesday, 11.15 p.m. If you know anything about Chicago politics, you'll understand why a 63-year-old board captain was braving the ungentle hour and the less gentle streets. You see, Ward Captain Leo J. Ramutka was returning home from a wake, and off Wiedersehen to a loyal, registered voter he knew would one day meet him in that great polling station in the sky. What Ward Captain Ramutka failed to foresee was just how soon that meeting would be. No! No, no! When a medieval museum is sold to be converted into a disco, a 13th century suit of armor comes to life and starts killing the business people responsible via crossbow bolt, axe, mace, and lance. Kolchak discovers only an ancient battle axe blessed by the Pope can stop it. Written by Michael Kozel and David Chase from a story by Paul Magistretti. Michael Kozel had also co-written Demon in Lace. Kolchak was the first series he worked on. He became a writer for Switch, Del Vecchio, and later created Hill Street Blues. Magistretti isn't credited with very much. He did episodes of Simon & Simon, WizKids, and MacGyver. Directed by TV veteran Vincent Macavity, who we've mentioned several times on Forgotten TV. Guest stars John Diener as yet another new police captain, Rausch, and Hans Conried. Among his many appearances were the 1953 cult classics The Twonky and The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. He also provided the voices for many characters over the years, such as Snidely Whiplash on Dudley Do-Right and Bullwinkle and Dr. Dread on Drakpak. Okay, so this one was pure corn, but still passable as creepy late-night entertainment. The looks on Kolchak's face as the new police captain goes into his diatribe was priceless. Between this and the next episode, on March 12th, ABC and Universal come to an agreement to cut the original 22-episode order down to 20, giving the public reason that Darren McGavin had the flu which caused shooting delays. Kolchak, The Night Stalker, Episode 19, The Youth Killer. Aired Friday, March 14, 1975. Nowhere in man's history does he display more tenacity, more perseverance than in his search for eternal youth. Halting the relentless process of aging has been a constant dream of man's and of woman's. With Kolchak being given the swinging single scene again, he checks out matchmaking services, but gets sidetracked by old people dropping dead exercising in the city at night. His two stories converge when investigating leads him to Max Match, an exclusive curated computer dating service run by the beautiful Helen Surtees. Its members must be physically perfect, for Helen is none other then Helen of Troy, maintaining her eternal beauty by ceremonially sacrificing the youth of others to Hecate, Greek goddess of witchcraft and magic. 
and when Kolchak foolishly puts on an Olympian ring he cannot take off, he risks being sacrificed himself. This was the last of five episodes written by Rudolf Borchert, directed by Don McDougall, with Kathy Lee Crosby, Dwayne Hickman, yes, TV's Dobie Gillis was new police sergeant Orkin, Kathleen Freeman, for 50 years, she was a prolific character actress seen in literally everything from 1948's The Naked City to Joe Dirt in 2001. Reb Brown, 1970's Captain America, has a walk-on role. And John Fieldler returns as Gordy the Ghoul, who we haven't seen since Episode 3. An interesting episode compared to the Monster of the Week. However, the writing seemed sloppy, or perhaps something was lost in editing. Just how many sacrifices was Helen making to the gods? It seemed almost daily. How long had this gone on? It would have made a lot more sense if it was one of those, every year, X number of people must be sacrificed to maintain her beauty. Also, the timing of Hikate being offended at an imperfect sacrifice only at the climax of the episode was rather convenient. You would think she would have shown offense immediately. Not sure why Vincenzo keeps giving Carl the swinging singles beat. Didn't he learn anything from the first time? Outside of university projects, the first computer dating match service started in 1965 in New York City called Project TACT, or Technical Automated Compatibility Testing. Clients paid $5 and answered more than 100 questions. The answers were fed into an IBM 1400 series computer, which would produce five potential matches for the client. The advent of the video cassette in the mid-70s enabled people to record video without having to have a TV studio, and thus video dating was born. Something we'll dive into more on the next podcast on WizKids. In 1994, Kiss.com became the first modern dating website, followed soon by Match.com in 1995. Today, with a plethora of dating websites and apps, some 50 million Americans have tried online dating. And this was the final episode with Jack Greenwich. And we'll talk about Jack later in Behind the Scenes. Kolchak the Night Stalker Episode 20, The Sentry. Aired Friday, March 28th, 1975. For the first time, we open to an action sequence, already underway, with Kolchak driving an electric utility vehicle down a long subterranean hallway, away from something. This is one story. I mean, I get to file in person, so I'll have to talk fast because it's after me. Claustrophobia has long been a part of the human experience from the Cro-Magnon all the way up to Freud. So if you ever happen to find yourself underground, and I mean deep underground, don't linger in the shadows. Kolchak recounts the story to bring us up to speed. Exploring underground tunnels adjacent to an underground storage facility, workers find a cache of eggs and are attacked by a creature. Unable to get information out of new police lieutenant Irene Lamont, Kolchak sneaks into the autopsy 
then socially engineers a tour of the Marymount Underground facility. Sneaking away to explore, he comes across the creature, an upright reptile. Escaping, he gets arrested for his trouble. He has himself crated and shipped inside the facility again. He's caught again, but the creature makes itself known by crashing through walls and attacking people. Kolchak finds the nest of eggs and returns them to the creature, which wanders off to the depths of the tunnels. I know what's going to happen now. As far as the authorities are concerned, the events of April 20th and 21st will never have occurred. They, they're going to tell me that if I ever breathe a word of this, they're going to break me like a straw man. And what about the sentry? Will its eggs hatch in the warm, dark, dank dampness of its nesting place? Who knows? Maybe the government will find the nest, maybe they won't. We'll probably never know. But if you're in a subway or a pedestrian tunnel underneath a ballpark and you think you hear something moving in the walls, it may not be your imagination. Take my advice. Don't walk. Run to the nearest exit. Written by the writing team of L. Ford Neal and John Huff. Directed by Seymour Robbie. Known for working on F Troop, Trapper John M.D., Remington Steele, and Murder, she wrote, this is his only Kolchak episode. With Kathy Brown as new police lieutenant Irene Lamont, Albert Paulson, John Hoyt, Tom Bosley, and stuntman Craig Baxley was the sentry. First, I have to mention the obvious resemblance of this story to Star Trek's Devil in the Dark, where it turned out the Horta was a mother protecting her eggs from the mining colony. It is so similar, the plot became obvious very early in the episode. Unfortunately, the monster in this one resembles something left over from the alligator people. We also have the by now old trope of Carl's camera repelling a creature. This is the third time they've done this by my count. Notably, the creature wasn't destroyed, but simply wanders off further into the tunnels at the conclusion with its nest of eggs, all but the one Kolchak had removed and left on the counter in the storage room. Also, the episode would have us believe that an extensive underground storage facility with miles-long tunnels, over 10,000 feet below the surface, the length of eight Empire State buildings, was dug and constructed in the city of Chicago, something that strains credulity. These types of facilities are normally in remote, geologically stable areas, not in the middle of a city. By comparison, Subtropolis, the world's largest underground storage and industrial facility located on the outskirts of Kansas City, is the size of 140 football fields with 8 miles of paved roads and is only 160 feet deep. NORAD inside Cheyenne Mountain, Colorado, is 2,000 feet deep. However, the China Jinping Underground Laboratory is 7,900 feet deep. Still, the episode had some great character moments. Kathy Brown was McGavin's wife and had been an actress since the 50s, appearing on Gunsmoke, Sea Hunt, Bonanza, 
Star Trek, and much more. It was clear she and McGavin had on-screen chemistry, and his reactions to her were hilarious. Viewers tuning in the following week would find a rerun as ABC ran them Fridays in the same time slot all summer long. In May, Kolchak was listed among seven series cancellations, which included Kung Fu and The Odd Couple. But of course, there is much, much more to the story. Dark Shadows, tonight at 11.30. At last, the darkness has come. Goodbye, Maggie Evans. I might have loved you. I might have spared you. But now, you must die. Dark Shadows, tonight at 11.30 on Channel 44. Now, for every kid who has ever seen a science fiction movie, thrilled to the amazing strength of an out-of-this-world movie monster, comes Great Garlu by Marx. Garlu the Mighty. Garlu the Untamed. Garlu the Terrible. Who can stop him? Who can control this monstrous creature? You can, kids, because Great Garlu by Marx is yours to command. With these battery-operated controls, you can make Garlu go, stop, bend, pick up, turn. Yes, Great Garlu, almost two feet tall, will be your faithful servant. You name it, you're the boss. Bring out-of-this-world excitement into your house, kids. Own the most fantastic toy of all. Great Garlu by Marx. M-A-R-X spells Mark's world's largest toy maker. Bone Chilling Behind the Scenes First, let's look at our cast of players. Returning from the films was Darren McGavin as Carl Kolchak and Simon Oakland as Tony Vincenzo, Carl's editor. Newly introduced was Jack Greenwich as Ron Updike, Carl's foil of sorts, in the newsroom. Greenwich had been in 1955's Rebel Without a Cause, as well as a regular on The Bob Newhart Show, and notably played a gay hairdresser that hit on Darren McGavin's character in a 1968 episode of McGavin's series, The Outsider. Coincidentally, Simon Oakland was also in that episode. This appearance and previously working with McGavin may have been influential in his casting on The Night Stalker. It also didn't hurt that one of the Universal casting people used to be his agent. Greenwich had kind words for his Kolchak co-stars. Darren couldn't have been nicer. He'd help you with your lines or anything. He was always there for you. Ruth McDevitt was a dear, as was Carol Ann Soucy. And it was a great honor to work with Simon Oakland. When I was in college, I saw a play called The Great Sebastian with Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine. And Simon Oakland was in the cast. That was really my introduction to theater. So it was an incredible thrill to be actually working with him. Also joining the cast was Carol Ann Soucy as Monique Marmelstein who we discussed in the segment on Episode 6, and whose character was an early casualty of the Cy Shermack shakeup. 
Ruth McDevitt also appeared as the old lady letter writer in the premiere episode. Returned in the fifth episode as Miss Emily, although the character's name is not consistently given or spelled correctly. The actress had a long history of stage, radio, film, and TV appearances, including the films The Parent Trap and The Birds. As mentioned at the beginning, the Kolchak theme music was composed by artist Gil Millay. A true Renaissance man, Gil Millay began his career as a post-bop baritone saxophonist who also composed and painted, later branching out into a wide variety of artistic and scientific fields. He abandoned jazz fairly early in his career, choosing to compose a number of film and television scores and experimented with electronic music instead. He composed music for The Andromeda Strain, Night Gallery, the Six Million Dollar Man, 1984's Fatal Vision, and about 100 other films and TV movies and series. One such TV movie was 1974's The Questor Tapes, written by Gene Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn. Some of the background music in that movie ended up becoming the theme music for Kolchak when Millay was called in on short notice. I was called in by Darren McGavin 20 minutes before they were shooting the main title. He called me in and he said, Listen, I've liked your work and would you be available for this? What do you think a good concept would be? So we talked and I asked, When do you need the main title? He said, We're going to film it right now, in 20 minutes. Well, if you remember the beginning of Night Stalker, Darren McGavin walks into this room, whistling, and then the orchestra comes in behind his whistling, actually supporting him, and then the orchestra takes over, and then we go into the main title. Well, how can they film the main title when you don't have a theme? So in 20 minutes, and I'm serious about this, there was the maddest dash you ever saw in your life to put together a theme and to find something, and I played it for him on the piano, and he says, I like that. It sounds terrific. Let's use that. We brought down the head of the music library at Universal, and he sight-read the part I wrote for him, and whistled it, and I put it on a cassette recorder. The tape was rushed over to the stage with Darren. He's listening to it on the way over. In 20 minutes, the theme was written, was taped for him to commit to memory, and then, when he got over to the stage, they shot it. That was unbelievable, but it was important that the whistling matched his mouth movements. Malay scored the first four episodes but left the series after that, with Jerry Fieldling taking over scoring for the majority of the remaining series. With Dan Curtis not returning from the TV movies to produce, who ran the series? Paul Playden was the first producer brought on to oversee bringing the Night Stalker to viewers as a weekly series. An actor in the 1950s, he began writing in the 60s on shows like Combat, Garrison's Gorillas, and Mission Impossible. He became an associate producer on Canon, then was brought on as full producer on the second season of The Magician for its final ten episodes. On the third episode, Platon and McGavin got in an argument over the nature of the UFO alien. I'll let director Alan Barron tell the story. The first producer was Paul Playden. We got along very well, but it was a strange situation. When I was directing the episode UFO, about a hostile alien that sweeps through Chicago, I was still shaken up from a car accident. 
I came on the set and found an argument going on between Paul and Darren McGavin. They were debating whether this thing from outer space was visible or invisible. Paul wanted to have a creature, but Darren felt a creature would be like a cheap Japanese movie. There was merit to both arguments. Meanwhile, I was wandering around, not realizing that I was still in shock from the accident. At one point, I almost fainted. Meanwhile, these two guys kept at each other, and they weren't any closer to resolving the issue. Finally, I called one of the Universal executives and explained my dilemma. He said, Well, do the best you can. So I arranged for a Ritter machine to be brought on the set. This is a large propeller that blows air, and I used it to create an effect of this space creature attacking people. It was a totally improvised monster, and seemed like a good direction to go in. In retrospect, it needed more planning, but we got some good effects out of it. Paul Playden left the show on this episode, and Cy Shermack was brought on for the remainder of the series. A prolific writer on the 1950s series Rocky King Detective, credited for 237 of those episodes. Brought to you by Clorets with Retson. Clorets makes your breath kissing sweet. Rocky King Detective, starring Roscoe Carnes as Rocky King, chief of homicide of a metropolitan police force in an exciting fight against crime. Brought to you by Clorets, the delicious chlorophyll chewing gum that makes breath kissing sweet in seconds. And Geritol, the remarkable fast-acting tonic that helps you feel stronger fast. He began producing in the 1960s with Convoy, The Virginian, Ironside, and in the 70s, his name graced nearly every episode of NBC's hit, Chips. Although Alan Barron got along with Paul Playden, this was not the case with Cy Shermack, starting from the beginning. Paul Playden. Cy and I didn't get along at all. I couldn't stand him. There was a scene in UFO where we blew up this wall. We used slow motion to show the aliens spitting these cops through the air, and it was spectacular. I was very pleased when I saw the dailies. When the lights came up, Mr. Shermack said that he noticed one of the cops had dark sunglasses on. I said, so? Shermack thought that was a major error, and he made an issue out of it. I couldn't believe it. Here was a great scene, and he's angry about a cop's sunglasses. I said, is that all you have to say? I told him where to go, and that was one of the reasons I stopped doing the show. The quarreling was a strain, and the long hours were exhausting. I worked on the werewolf show for 24 hours straight. I was getting literally a half hour sleep every night. By all accounts, the Night Stalker series had a grueling production schedule. This is primarily because much of it was shot at night. Shot primarily in L.A., establishing shots needed to be filmed in Chicago to lend authenticity to the series setting. Production manager, Ralph Sarriego. The Night Stalker was enormously hard on everyone because it was a night show. We shot day and night footage five days a week. The schedule was a killer. I went with the producer, Paul Playden, Darren McGavin and his wife, actress Kathy Brown, to Chicago where we shot a lot of second unit stuff. Then we hopped back on a plane and returned to Los Angeles. 
The production wasn't made any easier by the constant friction between producers and star Darren McGavin, who by all accounts was very difficult behind the scenes. He had been promised an executive producer role to entice him on to the weekly series, a promise the studio never intended to fulfill. This led to many behind-the-scenes difficulties. Producer Cy Shermack One of the reasons tensions ran so high on the show was because the relationship between me and Darren deteriorated rapidly, and everybody knew it. When we were in my office, I was the boss. When they were on the set and I wasn't there, Darren had them doing what he wanted. He never accepted that I was running the show. So aside from the long hours, the people working on this show were torn. It was very tough on them. It really wasn't two camps. That's not quite right. There was one camp, mine, and one actor, a major star, down on the set while I'm frantically preparing the next show. He was not altogether to blame for the situation. If we were doing this show today, he would be the executive producer, in fact and in title and he would do it the way he wanted. That's just not the way Universal did things in 1974. But you can't blame him for fighting for what he believed was right. Nobody's questioning Darren's sincerity and dedication, or his standing as a star, and he was ideal for that role. When Shermack came on board, the series became a co-production of Universal Television and Francie Productions, Shermack's production company. He was given the title option of producer or executive producer, the very title McGavin had been promised. Shermack would probably have given him the title Monumental Pain in the Ass. He once had to call security to kick McGavin out of a production meeting. To get even, McGavin went to the toilet every time Shermack visited the set, effectively shutting down production until he left. One criticism lobbied against the series is the lack of an overarching story or explanation as to why these paranormal experiences kept happening to Kolchak, with most of them taking place in Chicago. Of course, television was done completely differently then. Storylines were simpler, and serialized stories were only done on soap operas, and at the time, these weren't being done in prime time. Television was episodic, and self-contained storylines ruled the day, many times without much of an eye to continuity. The thinking at the time was that serialized stories were detrimental to rerun potential. Kolchak gave viewers a taste of spookiness after watching Kung Fu and the Six Million Dollar Man, aimed at adults staying home or kids too young to go out on a Friday night. The breakneck speed of production also didn't lend itself to well-thought-out story arcs. Producers just wanted to make it past mid-season without being canceled. Remarkably, ABC wisely never moved the show from Friday night, although they did move it to the earliest primetime slot at mid-season. In retrospect, perhaps this weakened the show a bit, but not to that noticeable a degree although sexual situations and dialogue were likely curtailed on some episodes. Why the move to 8 p.m. 7 central when the show is obviously more appropriate at 10 o'clock? 
The move had to do with the failure of what previously had been in that time slot, the short-lived Kodiak, as well as a slight uptick in ratings on Kolchak by midseason, and the thought that Kolchak could perform better as a Friday night lead-in than yet another new show. At the time, Darren McGavin insisted they wouldn't be altering the show for the earlier time slot, while at the same time, hope for more humor on the show. We're not going to make any changes for the new time period. We talked about it, but we feel we're doing well with our audiences now. Young people enjoy the fun and games. You can't do a horror show on network time. They don't want to scare people out of their pants. It's interesting what's happening between networks and pressure groups and the FCC. The networks are always concerned about being accused of excessive violence and influencing evil doings. So what we try to do is keep the suspense, and at the same time, I try to stay funny. Hopefully we will have more humor now because we'll be on at an earlier time. But of course, that depends on the writing. The move also had a lot to do with the just-implemented designation of this time slot as the family hour, and network confusion over just what type of content belonged there. I wouldn't have wanted to be ABC the morning after airing a female succubus killing virile young men on the family hour. Time slot move notwithstanding, the series struggled from the beginning, never cracking the coveted top 30 roster or even the top 50, and ranked number 74 out of 84 positions with a 13.6 Nielsen rating in the 1974-75 to TV season. With very few exceptions, these were automatic cancellation numbers, and it is almost certain ABC was not going to renew the series. However, before episode 19 aired, ABC and Universal agreed to cut short the season by two episodes, with an official cancellation announcement in May. What happened? One recurring myth is that new ABC head Fred Silverman, thought to not care for fantasy, axed the show. However, Silverman didn't hop on board ABC until June 1975, the month after the cancellation announcement. The real person responsible for the episode order cut and subsequent cancellation was none other than McGavin himself. Even though at midseason he was talking up the show and expressing positivity for its new time slot, behind the scenes he was growing increasingly disillusioned with the direction of the show, the filming schedule, and the lack of control. By February, the actor was making his dissatisfaction known. I hope they cancel this show as quickly as they can and get it out of their corporate, pinheaded minds. This is not the show I started out to do, and rather than to try to pump life with a hypodermic needle into something that's just dying, I'd rather bury it and put it out of its misery. McGavin ended up doing just that. Do you want to know who canceled this series? I canceled it. I was tired. I wasn't having any fun. I couldn't face another season of it. So I called Universal TV boss Frank Price and said, I want out. He said, well, ABC has to decide. So I called Marty Starger and said, I want out. He said, well, we need to talk to Universal. I said, look, will you two get together and cancel this thing? The next day, I got the phone call. 
telling me I was free. So, with two completed scripts, unfilmed episodes, multiple story treatments and outlines in development, production shut down. What would have been the final two episodes of the season? Episode 21 would likely have been Eve of Terror by Stephen Lord and Michael Kozel. Most people are familiar with the old Charles Dickens saying, Beauty is only skin deep. Yet how many know the rest of that quote, which continues, But ugly goes to the bone. In the script, a Dr. Myra Deckbar is accidentally exposed to sonic stimulation, which triggers a Jekyll Hyde situation, and her alter ego monster goes on a rampage, killing her assistant. Kolchak investigates until taken off the case in order to cover the arrival of America's number one sex kitten, who is also killed, leading back to Deckbar's alter ego. Carl asks a character in this script, What if I told you that a deranged feminist murdered a Casanova lab technician, a sex goddess, and her purveyor? One website called this a degrading, embarrassing attempt at handling the women's liberation question of the mid-1970s. Episode 22 would have been The Get of Belial, written by Don Mullally of The Devil's Platform. Assigned to cover a minor strike in West Virginia, Kolchak uncovers gruesome murders associated with a backwoods family with a faith-healing mother and a demonic offspring they keep in a cage. An interesting script, but one that likely would have been rewritten by David Chase to eliminate location shooting. The third unproduced script with no production number or date attached to it was The Executioners. It possibly would have been used if there had been a second season. I'm still having nightmares, even though I know it's over. Fini, kaput. Luckily, I managed to keep my head while all about me are losing theirs, if you'll pardon my little touch of the poetic. Losing their heads, or getting hung, or poisoned. One of the three. If you were in Chicago this past August, you know what I mean. Kolchak is demoted and is given the choice of writing obituaries or writing articles for the arts section, which is what he opts for, discovering a painting tied to a series of murders that Vincenzo is covering. These murders occur in a series of three, in which the first victim is hanged, the second executed with an axe, and the third poisoned. Working with an art expert, Kolchak attempts to unravel who or what is behind these bizarre murders, and what they have to do with the painting, without alerting Vincenzo that he is working on the same story. Other stories that would have seen episodes in a second season, Kolchak takes on Bigfoot, Medusa, the Phantom of the Opera, and the Piazza Bird, a human-hungry monster of Illini Native American lore. Carl Kolchak worked at the Chicago Bureau of the INS, the independent news service that provided news stories, photos, and content for newspapers. Kolchak's main beat was covering crime in the city. Driving around in his yellow 1966 Ford Mustang convertible, carrying his camera and cassette recorder, 
somehow continued to stumble onto case after case of bizarre and supernatural occurrences. It is never explained why he came across so many of these types of cases. Frumpily dressed in his often disheveled seersucker suit and open-weave straw pork pie hat, he is outspoken and quick to rely on gut instinct to jump to conclusions not considered by others, which often gets him into trouble. Not an expert on occult matters, he frequently must research to find out what he's up against. He's not a master of subtlety and is often clumsy and blundering when it comes time to actually confront the subjects of his investigations. Kolchak doesn't ever date or show interest in a woman in the series, being completely absorbed in his job. This is unlike the first movie where he had a live-in girlfriend and the second movie, which was a little more ambiguous but had a potential girlfriend character. His character is toned down quite a bit from the movies, where he was much more confrontational with Vincenzo and abrasive in general, something that would likely have gotten old on a weekly basis. Kolchak's taste in clothing may have been inelegant, but that was not the case with this gear. Online commenters often inaccurately describe his camera as an inadequate 110 model, popular with casual amateurs of the time. He actually carried a Raleigh 16S Sub-Mini with electronic flash, often called the Rolls-Royce of 16mm still cameras. A very high-quality, sophisticated connoisseur's camera that took proprietary 16mm film cartridges you would only find in a camera shop, not at the drugstore. It retailed for 140 GBP at the time, around $325 by the going exchange rate at the beginning of 1975. A choice seemingly contradictory to Kolchak's personality. His cassette recorder was a Sony TC-55 with a condenser microphone. Sony TC models set the standard for sturdy, high-quality recorders, and the TC-55 was no exception, with its dual counter-rotating flywheels and servo-controlled motor. The TC-55 cost three times as much as a basic Philips cassette recorder at the time. The quality of his gear revealed how seriously he took his job. However, his clumsy operation of them has gotten him into trouble more than once. Running only 20 episodes, Kolchak the Night Stalker was not thought a prime candidate for TV syndication. So in 1976, Universal selected four episodes to package into two TV movies for this purpose. Demon and Lace and Legacy of Terror became Demon and the Mummy. Firefall and the Energy Eater became Crackle of Death. Darren McGavin was called in to record additional lines linking two episodes together. Jack Greenwich and Simon Oakland were also called back to overdub a few lines of dialogue as well. When demand for the series resulted in it actually being sold into syndication to local stations as well as to CBS for late-night airings, these four episodes subsequently were not part of the package. Later, when the series was shown on the Sci-Fi Channel in the 1990s as part of its series collection, the episodes were missing, even though they could be caught as the edited-together TV movies over the years, as standalone episodes 
they remained lost episodes, so to speak. It wasn't until 1996 when Columbia House Home Video, as part of their re-TV video library, released the series on VHS that the episodes were seen again. Outside of reruns, Kolchak's impact on pop culture has been, shall we say, significant. In 1987, Werewolf hit the air as one of the shows of the original Fox Network TV lineup. Created by Frank Lupo, in the show, college student and new werewolf Eric Cord hunts the originator of his werewolf bloodline, a drifter named Janos Skorzeny, played by Chuck Connors, the same character name used in the original Night Stalker TV movie. In 1993, Chris Carter brought The X-Files to television, which became its own cultural phenomenon. Carter openly admits Kolchak was an inspiration behind his creation. There was a show on when I was a kid called The Night Stalker, and it was a very, very scary show, and I loved that show. And I had an opportunity to create a show for Fox, and they said, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, The Night Stalker was this fantastic show, and I was scared out of my pants. I said, there's nothing scary on television anymore. Let's do a scary show. He even managed to improve on the concept and deal with some of the criticisms Kolchak has had over the years, such as pairing the believer with the skeptic, making it part of the character's job to specifically investigate paranormal phenomena, and creating an overarching mythology behind the events. Carter even invited McGavin to reprise his role of Kolchak on a Season 5 episode of The X-Files, which the actor declined. Instead, he portrayed retired FBI agent Arthur Dales, one of the first agents to attempt to investigate The X-Files. How long have you been in the Bureau? <laughs> Do you know what an X-File is? It's, uh... Yeah, it's an unsolved case. No, it's a case that's been designated unsolved. In 2016, Carter again honored McGavin and the Kolchak character in the episode Mulder and Scully Meet the Weir Monster, an episode full of self-referential Easter eggs, with a character whose human presentation heavily resembled a certain 1970s reporter. Influence could be seen on shows like Supernatural and Chloe's Wall of Weird on Smallville. A Kolchak comic book series was published in 2003 by Moonstone Books with some commercial success. Jeff Rice's original Night Stalker script, as well as the unfilmed episodes The Get of Belial and Eve of Terror, were adapted. Today, countless books, Novels, short stories, all based on Jeff Rice's character, can be ordered. And would this podcast be complete without mentioning the attempted ABC reimagining? This 2005 reboot starred Stuart Townsend as an updated younger Carl Kolchak, an investigative reporter whose wife was murdered. Kolchak spends his time investigating other strange murders he believes are linked in some way to his wife's murder. Unlike the original, 
This Kolchak worked with senior crime reporter played by Gabrielle Union, photographer Eric Youngman, and editor Anthony Vincenzo played by Cotter Smith. The show was not well received and was taken off the air after six episodes, with the final four episodes only receiving an online release. Sadly, we've now lost most of the people involved in bringing us the original Kolchak. Ruth McDevitt died soon after Kolchak in 1976 at age 80. Simon Oakland died in 1983 at 68. His last role was in the short-lived 1983 series Tucker's Witch with Katherine Hicks. Darren McGavin died in 2006 at age 83. He continues to bring joy to people every year as the old man in A Christmas Story, the other role he iconically became connected with. Carol Ann Susie died in 2014 and was only 62. She lives on as the voice of Mrs. Wallowitz, Howard's mother, on The Big Bang Theory. Jeffrey Grant Rice, who created The Night Stalker, died in obscurity in 2015 at age 71. No national obituary ran. No news coverage. A local column ran in a Las Vegas paper, and that was all. A man who never owned a computer and the modern world passed by with email, instant messaging, and smartphones, who indirectly was responsible for inspiring one of the biggest pop culture phenomena ever, was gone. Kolchak the Night Stalker has now been aired in reruns countless times, never really going away. After the 1990s VHS releases, mid-2000s DVDs, streaming on Netflix and other services, and a recurrence in popularity on broadcast network MeTV, the Kolchak TV movies and series have always been in demand. Quite something for a show Johnny Carson joked was doomed because they would run out of monsters. Some episodes may not have been as impactful as others, but it was always creepy, fun entertainment, best consumed late at night when it's dark outside, and you can never be quite sure what that noise was. And it's easier to believe that a shadow might be a vampire, a haunted suit of armor, Rakshasa, or Aztec mummy waiting in the darkness. Next time on Forgotten TV. Next time on Forgotten TV, join me for a special presentation as producer and co-creator of WizKids, Bob Shane, joins me to bring you the untold story of 1983's WizKids that ran for one season on CBS. With special appearances by cast members I'm keeping under wraps until airtime. That's next time on Forgotten TV. Want more Forgotten TV? Become a patron on Patreon and gain access to Forgotten TV Supplemental, additional podcasts that go beyond the material presented in the show, plus extended previews of podcasts before they're openly posted, podcast swag, and more 
For as little as a dollar a month, you can become a producer and hear this upcoming podcast. The link to join us over on Patreon is in the show notes. Your funds do make a difference, helping me pay for accounts needed to contact TV creators and talent. Forgotten TV was executive produced by Will Welton and Doc Pinko. The DVD used for review was provided by Lee Goldberg, with producers Eric Fusco, Rich Kunkel, and Ron. Also thanks to all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. Forgotten TV is not affiliated or authorized by ABC, Universal Television, Francie Productions, or any production company involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate. All mentioned series and associated characters are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making the audio clips possible. Obs Gia, Bo Dooley, Brick Mantooth, Robert C. 2009, Vintage TV Commercials, Free the Kinescopes, Dario the WAP. Sources of quotes and background information are from the books and articles. The Night Stalker Companion by Mark DeWidziak. Science fiction television series 1959-1989 by Mark Phillips and Frank Garcia. TV Party by Billy Ingram. Vintage newspaper articles. And the websites. It Couldn't Happen Here. The Akolchak A Day blog. TheKolchakTapes.com. Movie Hole. The unofficial Simon Oakland tribute. Straight to DVD blog. History.com. Pinrepair.com. John Kenneth Moore's Reflections on Cult Movies and Classic TV. CamerQuest.com. Mania.com. Don't forget to like Forgotten TV on Facebook and follow Forgotten TV on Twitter. Or visit Forgotten.tv for all content and links. This podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV.